this morning. We're carrying on in our series in Mark. Uh, we started the series uh, last week in the book of Mark called The King and His Cross. And so we're going to be carrying on with that this week. And it's just, it's amazing. It's such a good book. I would really encourage you, if you've not had the chance to ever do it before, read the book of Mark from start to finish, just in preparation for us going through this each week. Just get the full story, get the full picture, because it's such a good book. Uh, and James kicked things off uh, last week, and we're going to be carrying on today in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 9 to 13. Uh, If you need a Bible, there are some strategic Bibles placed at the end of the rows. If you would like one, pop your hand up and someone will magically pass one along. They won't magically pass it, they'll just pass it normally. There's no magic involved. Um, But one will make its way along to you. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love you to take that away with you, just as our gift from you, uh, from us to you today. We would just love that every person has access to a Bible. And so please take one away if you don't have one. Um, The Book of Mark uh, is written by, does anyone know who it's written by? It's a trick question. It's Mark. Good job, everyone. Uh, and it's mainly, it's mainly, theologians kind of say, it's mainly uh, based on the accounts of Peter, uh, who is one of um, Jesus' disciples. Mark was quite a close associate with him. And so what you read as you go through this book is like eyewitness accounts of things that happened in the life of Jesus. Uh, and so you can trust the source. You can trust that it's someone who knew what was going on because they were there. They were there as these things were happening. So it's really exciting. Uh, and we're picking up today uh, where James left off last week. Uh, I read a story online a couple of weeks ago um, about an insurance scam that went down in LA in the 1970s. Uh, There was a man, he bought a Ferrari Dino, which is a very rare car nowadays. It was a very expensive car. uh, And uh, his business went south. He couldn't afford to keep up the payments on it. And rather than just sell it and deal with the consequences, uh, he thought, I could get all my money back if I can get someone to steal my car. And then I'll claim it on the insurance and I'll get the money back. So he went and hired some local criminals. I don't know where you go to hire local criminals. I don't know if there's like a Facebook group that you go on, like criminals for rent or anything like that. But he managed to convince these two guys to come and steal his car for him. So he took his car out, parked outside a restaurant. Him and his wife went for a lovely meal. And he knew in the back of his head, when I come out, my car's not going to be here. It's going to be gone. It's going to be stolen. I'll cash in the insurance will be brought now, part of the plan was that the, the, the two thieves that he hired were supposed to take it to a local garage, chop it all up into little bits, and then take it out to sea and dump it. So there was no evidence of this car having ever uh, been like been found ever. But he hired lazy criminals. Now, I'm not sure what the difference is. I don't know where you hire efficient criminals. Where you hire, but these guys thought, rather than do all the chopping, taking it all down, and then floating it away out to sea and dumping it, we'll just dig a big hole and we'll drive the car into the hole and then we'll fill it back up again with soil and no one will ever know that it was there. Anyway, four years later, after an anonymous tip-off to the police, they find this car in this big hole. And because it's so dry in LA, it's been preserved reasonably well. It's kind of sand round about it. Uh, They dig it out, the insurance company uh, restore it, and then they sell it on again at this massive price uh, because it has this big backstory behind it. Where am I going with this, you may be asking me. The point is today, at the start of Mark, in this passage today, Jesus' baptism, which is what we're going to be looking at, is like the starting point for God's plan of restoration for his creation. Where it had gone wrong, where it had gone badly, where it had fallen apart, where it hadn't been uh, going where it was supposed to go, this is God's moment where he starts bringing it all back around again. The same way uh, the thieves took the car and they, they dropped it in that hole, but then someone restored it. And sold it on again. This is what's happening this morning. We see the start of God's plan for creation's restoration. And so we're going to read together Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out in the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And we start to see this beautiful uh, reflection of creation. And this moment where Jesus is baptised is almost like a mirror image of what happened. You see, as, as uh, the earth was created, it was all water. And then out of the water came land, came creation. The waters parted and there was land. In the same way, Jesus comes out of the water as God's son, as a, as a man who's going to bring new creation into life again. He comes out. Again, we go on. Uh, as he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him. It says it hovers on him like a dove. In the same way, in the creation story, the Holy Spirit hovered over the earth as like a creation catalyst for the whole thing kicking off. Jesus is now saying that he's the next step in creation, the restoration. Then we have the Father's voice speak over Jesus. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He expresses delight uh, and, and just ultimate pleasure in his son. In the same way that in the creation story, he talked about how he was pleased with what had been created. And then finally, Jesus marches off into the desert to be tempted. And this is where the story changes. Because in the beginning, with Adam and Eve, they were tempted and they failed in that temptation. Sin entered the world. And that was the moment where creation started to decay away from what God wanted it to be. But in this moment, Jesus goes to be tempted. And we find out later on that he uh, stands up to temptation. He doesn't crumble and he doesn't fall. And so this is the moment where God's plan for restoration starts to come into effect. And so we're just going to look today at what are some of the things that we can learn from God's plan for the restoration of creation. And the first thing is this. The first thing that really jumps out is that God's plan doesn't always come in the form that we expect it to come in. It's often an unexpected plan. You see, over the history of God's people, they'd found themselves uh, under pressure and in dangerous situations time and time again. They'd found themselves under the rule of the Egyptians. They'd found themselves under the rule of the Babylonians. Now we find them here under the rule of the Romans, oppressed uh, and, and being held down and being persecuted. And what they'd expected up until this point, each time God had delivered them uh, in a spectacular show of miraculous power. You see, when they came out of Egypt, he parted the sea so that they could leave. He won many battles and wars miraculously, were tiny numbers, and God's army defeated hundreds of thousands in the armies that came against them. And so again, as they were under Roman rule, the Israelites would have expected God to bring forth a mighty warrior who was going to overthrow the Roman system and take them down. And instead what they got was the most humble man who's ever lived, a meek and gentle saviour. They were expecting uh, a judge and a, and a warrior and a king. That's what it talks about in the book of Zephaniah and Zechariah and Malachi. So they were expecting this forceful saviour to come and deliver them from the hands of the Romans. But he wasn't that kind of man. The way he did things, his roots, his approach, made him an entirely unexpected saviour. Uh, recently, uh, I decided to take my wife Sarah out on a surprise date. 
Um, I don't know if anyone's like Sarah in this room. She has a surprise radar. She knows when something's going on. So if surprise birthday presents arrive in the house, she's found them in a couple of days. Uh, if I plan a surprise party, she knows about it before I've even sent the invites out. She's got a surprise radar, so it takes a lot of work for me to pull off a surprise. But recently, I managed to do it. I pulled off a surprise date, but I had to cast in about... There was a cast of nine or ten people involved in keeping the surprise a surprise. So I organised a fake night out for her with some friends where they were going to go and have dinner uh, and cocktails. And so they had this group chat going on on WhatsApp, the dinner and cocktail chat, everyone was chatting about it. Then on the side, I organised a fake babysitter to turn up who was going to do some stuff beforehand and look after everyone for a bit while she was getting ready. And then, uh, and then I organised a fake meeting for myself where I went out to the fake meeting and I was like, I'll see you later. So I left in my normal clothes with a backpack and in my backpack was my smart clothes for going out in a day. And I pulled around the corner and got changed in the car had a wee bottle of champagne ready, and then her friends texted her and they're like, oh, we're just around the corner, why don't you come out? And so she walked around the corner and I was standing there, like very romantically with a, a bunch of flowers and a wee glass of champagne. And she was like, you're going to be late for your meeting, what are you doing? <laughs> she was so surprised, she just didn't get at all what was going on. In the very same way, God's plan for restoration of creation is completely unexpected for humanity. They did not expect what God had planned. It was not at all what they were expecting, but what turned out to happen exceeded all of their expectations. They were waiting on some king uh, to come and conquer the Roman Empire, and what they actually got was a king who conquered death itself, who made a way uh, to eternal life with the Father, who found a way to clean away all the dirt and grime and sin and shame it attached itself to them. It was so much more than they were expecting. It wasn't the only unexpected part of the plan. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is by no stretch of the imagination the Monaco of the Middle East. It's the kind of place you grow up and you pretend, or you talk about it generally. Um, I don't know about you, but if, if you're from Glasgow, if you come from certain parts of Glasgow, you will then refer it. So I come from a part of Glasgow that's outside the West End of Glasgow, not the posh part of West End, but like the wild West End of Glasgow when you go beyond it. But if, uh, if I'm trying to impress them, they'll say, oh yeah, I come from the West End of Glasgow, yeah, that's where I come from. It's that kind of place where you don't want to tell people about it. Uh, Philip and Nathaniel are having a conversation in John chapter 1, and Philip says, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And, and Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? That's the kind of place that Jesus came from. Not this uh, royal, palatial life, but from a place that was uh, had its nose turned up at, that people would actively pretend they weren't from. That kind of place. And again, in John the Baptist, John the Baptist uh, baptises Jesus. John wasn't some mainstay of the church in that day. He was uh, very much on the fringes. He was out in the desert uh, eating locusts and wild honey. Uh, and running about, people would have thought that he was a bit crazy, that, that he, wasn't, he wasn't to be trusted by some, but that's the man that, that God chose to welcome Jesus into the world. It was an unexpected plot. It was an unexpected man. And we could just, if this one story was the only time that happened in the Bible, we could just sweep it under the carpet and say, obviously something went wrong here. Like God's plans normally, like to the dot, we can expect what to happen. But if you look through the Bible time and time again, God uses people who you wouldn't expect them to use in situations where you wouldn't expect them to be. You know, Moses was probably the least confident leader 
in the world. God gives him this mission and he says, but I've got a speech impediment and I'm probably a bit rubbish. You should probably ask somebody else. There's definitely got to be somebody better for the job. Though that's the kind of man that God uses. You know, Gideon was the youngest son of a poor farmer and God chose him to be the general of the Lord's armies. Amos was the son of a farmer who ended up prophesying in the courts of the king in the north. Time and time again, God chooses to use unexpected people. He chooses to use uh, a whole variety of people in lots of different situations. His plan is unexpected. He doesn't work how we think he should work. Thank goodness for that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 26, it says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness holiness and redemption therefore as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord what that passage says to me is everyone gets to play that's one of our values as a vineyard church everyone gets to play this isn't the kind of uh, church where one person does all the work that there's one hero leader who uh, takes it on for everyone else and we all just stand in awe of their brilliance it's not that kind of place this is a church where everyone gets to play everyone has a place Everyone has a part to play in God's story. Isn't that amazing? Let the truth of that sink in for a wee moment. God chose you, not your neighbour who you think is better than you, not the famous Christians that we see uh, on TV, not anyone else. He chose you to play your part. What an honour and what a privilege. And what he's looking for from us are humble hearts. You know what it says? We're not to boast in ourselves, but boast in the Lord. Chose the lowly things, the weak things, the despised things, so that no one can boast in themselves. Boast in the Lord. How good he is. How wonderful he is. And I wonder today, maybe a question that we have to ask ourselves is, what have we counted ourselves out of that God was actually counting us in? Where are the places or the moments in our life where we've said, actually, I don't think I'm good enough for that. I don't think I'm strong enough for that. I don't think I'm wise enough for that. Well, the whole time God unexpectedly was saying, you're the perfect person for that. You're the person I've chosen. You get to ask God that this week. Just bring that before him and say, God, are there any places where I've counted myself out, where you were actually counting myself in? And another good question for us to ask this morning is, where are the areas where we're waiting on an answer from God, an answer to prayer, an answer for something going on that maybe he's answering in a completely unexpected way, where we've been holding out for everything, for this one specific thing to happen, might he be answering in a different way this morning, in an unexpected way, in a way that doesn't make sense to us right now, but actually overarchingly is much better than we could ever imagine. So the first thing about the plan is that it's an unexpected plan. Um, the second thing that we get to see about the God's, God's plan for the restoration of creation is that it's a plan that prefers. It's a plan that prefers. As we move through the passage, we, we just see this beautiful moment of uh, God three in one relating and acting together and just demonstrating what 
relationship looks like. The three parts of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, preferring each other, loving one another, encouraging one another, just demonstrating what creation was supposed to be. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. See, we've got Jesus playing his part. He's walking into the water, fully knowing that this is the very beginning of his march towards death. Then we have the Father who speaks these words of encouragement over the Son. He speaks to the Son and lets him know, You are my Son. In you I am well pleased. I'm so proud of you. I'm so delighted that you've chosen to do this. I just love you so much. And then you've got the Holy Spirit mixed in as well, who clothes Jesus in power, ready for what's to come. It's the three parts of God acting as they should. The Saviour, the Encourager, then the Bringer of the power in amongst all. It's just the most beautiful thing to happen. Cornelius uh, Plantinga, who is a famous theologian, puts it like this. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other and defer to one another. Each divine person harbours the others at the centre of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelopes and encourages and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. God, in his very three-part person, demonstrates this blueprint for what creation is supposed to be, this way of relating to one another, this way of preferring one another, this way of putting each other before each other. Um, when I was younger, my dad was always well keen for me to get involved in his DIY projects with him. Um, so he would always, like, whenever he was fixing things, and my dad fixed a lot of things. My dad's the kind of guy who is an absolute offence if a tradesman enters his home to do something for him. It's not okay. He's like, this will never happen. The roof could be hanging off the house, and he's still like, I can fix that. I'll do that myself. So we always had DIY projects going on in our house. My dad was always keen for me to be involved with them. I wasn't that keen on being involved. So usually about half an hour into whatever we were doing, I would fake a text from a friend or I'd feign an injury. I'd wait for him to drop something near me and then pretend like it had landed on me or I'd start to develop a cold within that first half an hour. And I'd always find a way of sneaking away about half an hour into it. And he was wanting to show me what to do and I just wasn't interested. I was mainly interested in that point at playing football, hanging out with my friends and trying to convince girls it was a good idea to go out with me. Those were my three key activities at that point in time. So I kept on sneaking away. And eventually my little brother got older uh, and he loved doing DIY stuff with my dad. So he always hung out. So eventually my dad just stopped asking me uh, to do DIY projects with him and, and my wee brother would do it instead. Anyway, fast forward about 15 years uh, and we bought our first home a couple of years ago and it is a wreck <laughs> and it needs so much work done to it and I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm sat in front of YouTube videos. I'm trying to learn how you lay floor and how you make skirting board and how you attach skirting board and how you paint over damp areas and how you do all of this stuff and I just didn't have a clue how to do it. Do you want to know who the first person who was that turned up to help me do all that stuff? It was my dad. Total hero that he was. He came and he stood and he held things and he showed me how to do things and he, he held my tools while I was doing some other things and he would just be there and we rewired the house and he did a whole bunch of stuff with me. Even though I hadn't preferred him at all, he chose to prefer me. Uh, and it wasn't because of anything I'd done, it was just because he loves me and he loves our family. And he wanted the best for us. And when we look at God in action, we get a wee glimpse of how we're supposed to live. Not selfishly, but constantly looking at how we can encourage and build and lift others. 
God's three-part character demonstrates in its perfect form how we're supposed to live for one another, to not withhold from one another, to be fully present, fully generous, fully loving, fully committed to each other in a way that this world doesn't really know. Um, the world we live in has moved quite far away from the perfect intention of creation that God had at the start. There's a lot of selfishness in our world uh, at this moment. There's a lot of times we see it in advertising over and over again, you know. You deserve this because you're worth it, you know. Do this for you because uh, it's, it's your thing. Don't worry about what other people want. This is for you. Treat yourself in this moment. It's based around happiness, our own happiness. As long as we're happy, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world, as long as we're okay. And this week I've been thinking a lot about an orchestra. Can you imagine if an orchestra worked that way? So you imagine you go, you bought tickets to see uh, the New York Symphony Orchestra and you're really excited about it. Uh, and you turn up and the orchestra's ready to go. But they've all decided that actually my own happiness is the thing that's the most important in this orchestra. So you've got the guy on the trumpet and he's like, I'm just going to play all my trumpet jazz solos because they're what I love and that's what I'm going to do. So you've got him over there playing that. And then the drummer's like, well, I only get to play like 20 seconds every hour in the orchestra, like the way I want to. So I'm just, I'm just going to play as loud as I want, and I'm going to play the most banging drum solo you've ever heard in your life. It's going to go on for half an hour. Doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. And then you've got uh, the people on the violins, and they're like, well, we love, we love those little intricate melodies. So we're just going to play them the whole time. I'm not going to play any backing. So can you imagine what it would sound like? It would be disgusting. It would be an offence to the ears. The whole reason an orchestra works is that they know their part. At each given time. Sometimes the guy on the trumpet will be playing a solo. Other times he'll be playing some backing melody. Other times he won't be playing at all because it's not actually about him. It's about how beautiful is the music. Sometimes the drummer will be bashing those cymbals really loud and loving life. Other times he will have nothing to do for 20 minutes of the piece. But he recognises it's not about me. It's about making sure the music sounds beautiful. That's what our lives should look like as Christians. We're not called to be doing our own thing over here regardless of what everyone else is doing. It's designed to be like an orchestra where we work together to make beautiful music. That's what the church should look like. Each of us playing our part. Sometimes up front, doing something where lots of people notice you. Other times, taking the bin out and the last person to leave the building where nobody knows you did it. Sometimes supporting somebody else for a while, putting your own dreams aside so that you can support someone else to reach the dreams that God's put on their heart. It's supposed to work like that, like an orchestra, where we love and prefer one another. That's God's calling us, to be radically generous of ourselves, radically sacrificial of our own time, our money, our own needs, and to recognise that it's actually not about us. It's about seeing his kingdom come, playing our part, whatever that looks like. So it's a plan that prefers. And then the final thing is this. It's a plan that needs preparation. As we draw towards the end of this passage um, and the end of this incredible interaction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, we then see Jesus uh, head off into the desert to be tempted. Um, at the moment of baptism, again, in an unexpected way, you might have thought, this is it. Now he should go to Jerusalem and preach to the masses. This is his moment. He's been confirmed as God's son. Let's get Wembley Stadium ready for him. Let's phone, phone around the countries and be like, Jesus is coming. You better get all your places booked out and invite everyone. But he chooses not to do that first. The first thing he does is he goes into the desert to be tempted. 
seems like a strange choice. We don't hear much about what happened to him uh, when he was tempted in the book of Mark, but from the other Gospels, uh, we get that he was tempted in, in several different ways. He was tempted physically. Um, he, ha- he hadn't eaten for 40 days or nights, uh, and the devil tempted him by saying, you know, just eat something, just drink something, it doesn't matter, just go for it. Um, he was tempted with his own ego uh, and with his own uh, sense of self-importance. You know, the devil took him up to the top of this high tower and he said, just jump off, like, just save yourself, fly like Superman, we all know you can do it, why don't you just show the world um, that you could just save yourself and everyone would be like, oh yeah, you're amazing. But he chose not to do it, that wasn't God's plan for him. And then he was tempted with power, the devil showed him the whole world, he said, you know, I will give you the keys to this kingdom, this can be your domain, you do what you want with it, I'll make this all yours. Jesus says, no, it's not the Father's way. He demonstrates a connection to his Father that allows him not to be swayed and drawn away from what his true purpose was. He demonstrates this connection that allows him to overcome trial and temptation. He finds his identity in God, not in himself, not in the people around him, but in who the Father says he is. Um, The other day, I was watching TV, and I I don't know if you get this or if it's just me that does it. Sometimes I, there's so much choice, I literally cannot decide what to watch. I find myself watching, like, scrolling a TV program's worth of time, trying to find a TV program to watch. And I did this the other day. I was on Amazon. I was going through it. I couldn't find anything. And eventually, after about 20 minutes of searching, I found Mr. Bean. And I was like, yes! I've not seen Mr. Bean in so long. I'm going to watch some Mr. Bean. Uh, so I put Mr. Bean on. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen it before, but and the one that I watched, uh, he's sitting a maths exam, uh, and he goes into the hall, he drives in, and he, he gets ready, and he gets out, and he, he's got all his pens out, and he's sitting beside a guy, and the guy out beside him brings out one pen, so he brings out seven pens to show how prepared he is, and then uh, the guy beside him, he turns to him, and he says, oh, what have you prepared? And the guy says, oh, I've been uh, practicing for trigonometry mostly, and Mr. Bean looks smugly at him, and he's like, oh, I've been uh, practicing, uh, I think he says, uh, what does he say, trigonometry, and he said, anyway, algebra or something like that. Anyway, the test paper comes, they open it up, and his neighbour starts writing furiously. And he's looking on both sides of the paper like, where is the algebra part of this? He cannot find it. It's all on trigonometry. And he's absolutely gutted. So in his moment of panic, what he does is he starts trying to cheat from his neighbour in various different creative ways. So he starts just by slowly idling along the bench towards his neighbour. And his neighbour catches him, so he has to go back. Uh, and then what he does is he, uh, he starts coughing and dropping pens beside him. And then as he goes around to get me, he pops up on the other side of his neighbour to have a look and have a read at his test. And he goes back in. His neighbour catches him, so he turns the paper face down on the desk. And then he puts his face down underneath the desk a little bit like this. And he starts blowing to try and get the answers again. Anyway, he spends the whole time trying to cheat. And at the end of the test, the invigilator goes, uh, well, everyone, we've got two minutes left. Uh, if you answered the green trigonometry paper, if you could put your answers in the tray on the left here, if you answered the white algebra paper, could you put your papers on the right here? And he looks inside the envelope, and there's another test. There's an algebra test. And you see him frantically writing for a minute, and he gets his paper taken off him. Uh, and he do- obviously doesn't do well. He doesn't pass the test. The point is this, though. In moments of trial and temptation, we are often a little bit like Mr. Reinhardt. We feel underprepared, not ready for it. And so we start to respond and react in ways that aren't good. Sometimes we... Uh, lie to cover our tracks. Sometimes we cheat a little bit to get to where we need to get to. Sometimes uh, we choose to put someone else down just to make ourselves look a little bit more important. 
And I think the key to knowing what to do in these times of trial and temptation is preparation. It's being prepared for those moments. It's being ready, expecting that they will come and knowing what it takes to, to overcome. When Jesus heads into the desert, he heads out from this place where he's just heard from his father. God has literally just spoken words over him that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son. That's the identity part. That's who I am, God's son. But also, I'm really pleased with you. So as he walks into the desert, he's not walking out thinking, oh, I hope I can deal with what's coming ahead. He's walking out with those words ringing in his ear. I am God's son, and he is really pleased with me. I am God's son, and he is so pleased with me. In the same moment, he's had this moment with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit has came and filled him and covered him and prepared him for what's coming ahead. He's had this moment with God that prepares him for the moment that comes ahead. I think that's the key to being prepared for trial and temptation. Are we meeting God? Do we know his voice ringing in our ears? Or are there other voices that get center stage? So how do we do that then? How do we meet with God in a way that we can walk towards trial and temptation with certainty about who we are and what we do? Well, it's spending time with him. There's no shortcut. There's no quick fix. There's no uh, overcoming trials for dummies. There's no self-help book in the world that's going to do it. It's about meeting with God your Father. Hearing his voice ringing in your ears. Allowing him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Daily, hourly, minutely, secondly. That our lives would revolve around him in a way that his voice gets the loudest say in our heads. Reading his word, praying regularly. There isn't a shortcut. We have to know God's voice. It's like preparing for battle. When we prepare well, our chances of victory increase tenfold. When we're not prepared and we're not ready, our chances of failure increase tenfold. And so I think there's a a call from God this morning to be prepared what's to come. It's a plan that requires preparation. Why don't we stand?